Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. Wikipedia calls Toast Kutzer a South African poet. He would say that he's a writer, a travel journalist, and a vocalist of Black Fever Underground. Born in 1997. No, no, you were not born in 1997. You were born in 1977. Incredible. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> he's in studio with us. Hi, Toast. Hi, it's nice to chat to you. <laughs> so I want to start at the very beginning. Why music? What drew you here? What sparked your love? Why music? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the first things maybe to say is that I'm not a musician. This is quite important information. I'm in a band, but I'm not a musician. I can't sing. I don't know what a key is. I can't tell one key from another. But I was drawn to music because I think like, you know, when you're young, in my case, it was when I was a student, really. I grew up in the Plutland. I was born in Craddock in the Eastern Cape, went to school in Somerset East nearby. So my sort of high school years would have been the first half of the 90s. Didn't really have, you know, out in the Plutland, at least. I'm not really much in the cities either, I suppose. Easy access as a high school kid. You know, this is uh, 15 years before Folk of Blisica type of years to, you know, a band you can go and see at your school hall or something that might inspire you and get into music. So I kind of missed that in high school. But when I went to university, I suddenly just discovered this world of cool music that was out there that, you know, was beyond what you could hear on Radio Algoa when you're driven to school on a Monday morning. And I started hanging out with, I guess, the right crowd, people who have been friends ever since I worked at the campus radio station, Rhodes Music Radio, where you just suddenly had an entire room filled with CDs that you could rifle through and put together a show. I played music on a little sort of a middle of the night show for a few years there. And then I met the people who had become the band members, Gil Hockman. The two of us founded the band together. He was already in a band. I mean, you know, I have as much musical talent now as I did then, which is which is nothing. But we decided that he could play a bit of guitar and I've been writing these poems or whatever they were. And why the hell not? I'll read the poems. And this is not even, you know, memorizing them. I still don't memorize my performances. I read them. Everyone who's ever seen our shows will know that I arrive there with a stack of A4 printouts and proceed to read poems while the band plays. And that's how we started was just me and Gil and back then to kind of flesh out our sound, I suppose. I had one of those little dictaphones. I was a journalism student. So I had little recordings of, you know, interviews or snippets of other music that you'd kind of splice into our performance at different times and a radio, an actual little radio that we also, you know, played with. So it, it was like kind of making a, a mixtape of sound bites and different field recordings, if you will. So it was extremely, extremely rudimentary. And, and we just did it because we felt we could. And when you at university and young, I think that's quite important. I think when you're young, you know, you really care less what people think or, you know, what something might be perceived as you just go for it. You know, we didn't start 
that band at that moment thinking, oh, we're going to be, be the best or the next Springbok Nude Girls or, you know, the big bands of that time would be Squeal and Springbok Nude Girls and Amersham and Sugar Drive and Lithium and those guys. Those were our heroes, you know. We'll go rock out to their music, but why can't we also make something weird on the side? And it turned out that what we did was different enough that it stood out, at least in in that kind of late 90s. We started the band in 1998. It stood out enough to be noticed. We entered a songwriting competition with, you know, literally the first, well, we recorded a song especially for this competition. It was an alternative songwriting competition. It was back then run by SABC2. They had a program, Geras, and built a newspaper. And lo and behold, I mean, I'm pretty sure not many people could have entered for this, but we won the alternative side of the competition. And we were kind of, you know, stunned by the news. I remember we had first gone up to Joburg. Funnily enough, another friend of mine from university who went under the name of Katie Cookberg. She also entered. She was also in the top three of this competition. So that's why I thought maybe not many people entered because how could two acts from Grahamstown were top three? Maybe the other Oaks forgot to enter. But anyway, we had gone up to Joburg. They first did sort of little TV interviews with us before they announced the winner. And my friend actually traveled with us. We were all together in a car, mission up from Grahamstown to Joburg and back. And when we, on the way back, we were at Kharip Dam, stopped to stretch our legs or whatever, when someone's phone rang. I guess someone already had a cell phone between us, probably Gil. And um, <laughs> the days before cell phones, what were those dark and ancient times? <laughs> and they said that we won it. We were just stunned. We were like, well, what now? And the great thing about this competition, and this was also quite important that we kind of got lucky in a right off the bat, we won a recording and they would bring out a CD and we would play it opikopi. And the latter, especially, you know, that news was just because we were just absolute like opikopi junkies, super fans. We would mission up from Grahamstown. And, you know, if you know where Grahamstown is and where Northam in the Bushveld is, you know, this is a two day trek. Generally, our third terms at university, you kind of just abandoned it. <laughs> Because Opikopi was such an important event, you know, sort of the week leading up to it. You couldn't just arrive there on the morning that it started. You needed to be there at least the day before, which meant that you had to leave Grahamstown probably two days before that, maybe three days before that if you needed to kind of recuperate in Joburg for a day before pushing on. Uh, you had to organize cars, you know, with students. Not everyone had a car that could go that far. You know, you might have had a car that could go down to Port Alfred, you know, but not everyone had a car that could drive 1,500 kilometers to the bloody bushveld. And you had to have a tent, so you had to borrow one maybe or decide who will sleep, you know, together and which tent and what we're going to eat. And to be honest, the logistics were not that well planned. We generally pull into Northam by the booze that we could afford and we bought bread and chips and we ate chip rolls and we drank and we partied to the best bands in South Africa and the known universes we were concerned. And and we loved it. And we were involved also as student radio people. We had different duties on different years. And then what the hell? They said that we're going to play the next year with the Buck Fever Underground, this band that Gil and I, by that stage, John Savage had joined us. He joined us for the recording of our first album, Your Mere Demens is Do It. And the album came out. It was in Musicus. I mean, now even Musica is closing down, you know. So our CD was in Musica. What the hell? And we played Opikopi with this strange spoken word 
part English, part Afrikaans band. John played drums. He was the most proficient musician between us. And his worst instrument was actually drums, which is why we forced him to play drums so that the rest of us could look okay. Uh, and Gil played guitar. We wore these overalls that we got from the Rhodes University ground staff, just workers' overalls. And I think we wore those plastic safety goggles and red kind of mining style helmets. And, you know, off we went performing at Opikopi. I have no idea what it sounded like. It was up at the small stage on the copy. I have no idea how they perceived it. Maybe they were already dazed enough by that aura of Opikopi that this was just another great thing that they saw. And there we were. That was kind of the birth of the band. So from my side, I stumbled into it. So the other members, John Savage went on to have several bands, the best known probably of which was Cassette. Gil Hockman has gone on to do several solo albums. He's just brought out instrumental kind of electronica album as well. He lives in Berlin. He makes music there. He produces stuff. John is still involved in the music industry. Somewhere along the line after Grahamstown, we moved to Cape Town, most of us. By that stage, Stephen Tim joined us. That must have been about 2002 as drummer. And Stephen is still in the band today. The two of us have been doing doing shows for, for many, many years together now. Uh, Gil and John, less so. Gil, because he lives in Berlin. Uh, John is in Cape Town, but has many things that keep him busy. Richard Kapp played guitar for us for many years, uh, quite important years of the band, times that we made albums like The Buck Fever Underground Saves and Verkeer de Flay. He's then also moved away. So we last few years we've had Michael Curran as our guitarist, and we've played as a trio in Cape Town. So it's myself and Stephen Tim and Michael Curran that is the Buck Fever Underground these days. Wow, wow, wow. That is a fantastic story. I love it. And I, I mean, I'm a giant fan of Buck Fever Underground, and your song... The High Felt is a Cuck Place to Be in Winter has been on every mixtape I've ever made. <laughs> you know, someone actually asked me the other day because we've made T-shirts, not of that song yet, but one of our best-selling band T-shirts is one that's got the lyrics for another song called Walk Fast, Whistle on the Back. And we've sold hundreds of them over the years. But someone actually asked me about the High Felt is a shit place to be in winter. And haven't we made a T-shirt? And I thought, well... Maybe we should. It'll be, you know, a bit of a retro T-shirt because it is that song is now 20 plus years old. But I think it's the right kind of sentiment and song to put on a T-shirt. So I think we'll make some of those. But the Heifeld and you say mixtape, and we were lucky that in those years, sort of around 99, 2000, somewhere there, SL Magazine came out with mixed CDs. They put together 8 or 10 or 15 South African new tracks and when you bought the magazine you got a cd i've always loved that concept and they once put the high file is a shit place to be in winter on one of those compilations wow and that was amazing because it meant that our music reached people who would otherwise also never have known of us they might not have been you know students in grahamstown or you know later maybe didn't kind of know the underground scene in cape town but sl magazine was sold around the country and I know, for example, Sia from The Brother Moves On, he mm. had one of those CDs, and that was his first impression of the Buck Fever Underground. In subsequent years, after I've met him, he's, he's pointed that out, saying, you know, that was kind of a moment where it was also like, you can do some different stuff with music. So that song has served us very well. It's one of our best-known songs. That and then Defocus and Ikak, 
which charted on Tax FM back in the day. And many Afrikaans students from Pretoria will know the Volkus Nikak well. It's also popped up on a maybe a alternative based of volume two type CDs somewhere over the years. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've never made hit songs, but it's nice when... And that's why I love the idea of a, a mixed CD or a mixed tape, you know, if you go further back. Because, you know, that's the way you share and spread music. Uh, these days, people share their playlists on streaming services. I guess it has the same kind of effect, but I, I still kind of like a bit of hardware. I mean, haven't you guys recently got onto Spotify and all the streaming platforms, like recently? Yeah, some of our music has been on there, but quite erratically. I think it's just because over the years, not always, you know, been the main focus of what we do. We all generally do other jobs and the band is an interesting side project for us. So different band members might have put different stuff on different services over the years. And because I don't use streaming services myself, I'm not really even aware of, of what's on there. But I've, in recent years, I've had a couple of messages from fans of ours who, you know, they live overseas. They might have had the CD at some point, but they, you know, sold the CDs when they moved or whatever the case is. Uh, and uh, they're looking for the music on streaming service and they can't find a certain song. And I'm like, well, I don't know. If it's not there, it's not there. But late last year, Stephen, our drummer, went to the effort of making sure that pretty much everything, there would be a few more obscure than the already obscure ones that are out there, recordings that are not on the streaming services. But we've put most up there now. The way I kind of see streaming services for a band our size is that we'll never make a lot of money from the music that's out there. I'm happy that it's out there now and more people, you know, I've had people from Australia saying, hey, sitting in the car, listening to your music. That wouldn't have happened without the streaming services because that person wouldn't have moved down there with the CD in a crate, you know, unlikely. But just to give you another example as to why, like, I think one can kind of manage the streaming services to an extent. And really, I'm talking about a band as small as ours. You know, we don't have a massive group of people. or You know, we don't have 10,000 people who will pre-order our CD when it comes out type of thing. Uh, we're talking mm -hmm. tens and maybe hundreds of people who are keen fans of the band and will follow us. So when we brought out, well, I guess now second last, properly recorded album, it was a live recording in different locations. It was a double album because it was one of the songs was almost... 15 minutes long and it's on CD professionally printed and very nicely put together and mixed down by a professional mastered by a professional you know all those things obviously cost you money even if you're doing it in the most minimal way so let's yeah. say you know for argument's sake that process cost us 20 or 30,000 rand to make x hundred CDs now to recover those costs purely from streaming for our kind of numbers is extremely unlikely so what we did for the first about year and a half of that double album, The Last Days of Beautiful, we first put it, you could buy CDs or you could download it on Bandcamp at a price. It wasn't free. Mm. And my reasoning with that is the people who are real fans of our band wouldn't mind paying for the music because they want the music. And they exactly. uh, will also hopefully attach a certain kind of rand value to it because they must know that it it costs us some kind of a rand value to put it out so for the first year and a half of that album like we had costs to recover we sold cds at shows and we sold the music as downloads on bandcamp and when we felt you know what yes i think we've more or less made back our money 
now put it on streaming services. I think that kind of worked for us. Because otherwise, I just feel that we wouldn't be able to spend 20 or 30,000 Rand on making a new album because we will never recover those costs. I don't see how it's possible for a band like us to do that just via your income through streaming. Mm, absolutely. No, it's, it is impossible, actually, for small bands with cult fan bases. We're very lucky because we do have cult fans. We have people who... They want everything that we've done and it makes it possible for us to put out little, we have, you know, merchandise like hoodies or caps or t-shirts and things that we sell all the time, even when we're not, you know, playing shows. But just now, for example, I'm making little DIY CDs here at home. So our last album, an EP that came out at the end of last year called Satellite, uh, which is something that we recorded during lockdown on our cell phone. So Michael Curran, our guitarist, would send us, he would sit at home and, you know, play some guitar, record it on his cell phone, send it to the band WhatsApp group. Stephen and I would listen to it. And then I picked a few of those, or Stephen did, and, and I put words to them. I recorded the vocals straight into my cell phone. And then Stephen put it all together. He produced it and put a couple of finishing touches to it. So that we put out you know, solely as a, a download. So that just went onto Bandcamp and onto the streaming services. It didn't cost us anything to make really. But again, because we have a couple of really awesome fans and people who want the CD still, they want that, that artifact. People asked on our Facebook group or on Instagram and so on, you know, but where's the CD? You know, great that it's out on Bandcamp, but where's the CD? So I've, I've just made some kind of on demand. I've made about 24 homemade CDs, handwritten sleeve notes. I've printed the same photograph as the cover, stuck it on with glue. And and people are oh really gosh. into that. And I like making those things as well. Some of our other kind of unofficial recordings, there's actually a recording called Walk Fast Whistle, which dates back to 2013, which is really just spoken word. There's very little music on it. I recorded it in the studio at John Savage's house because that year, specifically 2013, for some reason, I wrote a lot. And I just wanted to capture almost the, the poems just by themselves. In the end, a bit of music was added by Stephen and John. But that album, we only ever made 30 or 40 that we did for a city soiree house gig not long after that. So everyone who came to this gig at this house in Woodstock got a CD as part of you know the entry fee. But subsequently, I've had a couple of people ask, but hey, that's it. And all of those basically go to Mary Pack in Pinelands. And I buy those. You get like a plain white cardboard CD cover. And I drew all the covers by hand using a Koki pen. So each CD cover is a different little artwork. And I've now begun to make a new batch of them. I think I've made about 12. I might, well, I'll run out of CD covers soon and I'll stop. Or my Koki <laughs> will dry up. <laughs> but I love doing those things. I love sitting here, getting out my CD writer, burning CDs, you know, one by one by one, and then sitting as a just a nice, creative, relaxing exercise, sitting with a pen and drawing a picture and making making this thing. Um, that's probably one of the, the big reasons why I still enjoy the band is that we are involved in creating stuff, whether that's a live experience when we get to play live or whether it's these other artifacts. And I use that word because that's really what they are. You know, if a t-shirt has been in your cupboard for more than 10 years, 
and some have been in my cupboard for more than 20 years, you know, that's an artifact. This thing can be. (laughs) If a CD has been in your house for more than, listen, if you still have a CD in your house, that's an artifact. (laughs) I mean, this room in which I sit right now, I'm surrounded by books and crates of CDs and Buck Fever merch in one corner and artifacts. A lot of it is probably crap I should be throwing out. I'm not one of those people who is, you know, minimizing and clearing out and and paring down. I just want more storage. That's me. <laughs> I mean, Toast, basically you're punk, right? I mean, I love your ideas of the handwritten, hand-drawn things. It is so exciting for me. I mean, it feels like we should all go back to that, where it felt real. Well, I think there'll always be people who will love this kind of thing. I mean, one of the South Africa's probably greatest DIY band in this regard is the Makeovers and their associated acts. I mean, the CDs that they've created over the years, it's incredible. And Mm. you eventually find, um, just like the Makeovers did, they found their audience. You know, your audience might be in America or somewhere in Europe. It doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, it's harder now if you actually obviously want to tour and play live to people. The travel uh, restrictions, you know, it's a mission now. But you can still send stuff around the world. If you're streaming music, people will find it. Those artifacts will find their way to the people who want them. Well, I say you can post stuff everywhere. This is actually not true. As someone (laughs) who often goes to the post office... I don't know if most people probably haven't been to the post office in a while, but I go to the post office frequently to post merch to people. I mean, I use a courier as well. But the post office, when I post overseas, there's a list of countries that you're not allowed to post stuff to. You can't post anything to Australia or Germany. You can't post to Spain, but you can post to Portugal. The only country in Africa you can post to at the moment is Kenya. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, there are a few kind of COVID things that need to relax before we can send our merch all over the world. But the making of those artifacts, of those physical things, yeah, I think it's important. I don't think it will entirely go away. We consume more digital media, you know, so do I. It's not like I you know, don't use the internet. But my day job is I work for a travel magazine. And even though our content is on Instagram and Facebook and online and you can buy the magazine as a PDF, we still sell an actual magazine in the shop where you go to to buy your groceries. And there's still a very large demand for those physical magazines. Our magazine is, used to be a monthly. It's now, it's now bi-monthly. So it does stay on shelf. This is Vach and Go travel magazines I'm talking about. So it stays on shelf for longer. But We've just recorded some of our best sales for about three or four years of our, uh, I think maybe our December, January issue. So there's a real need, a demand still for physical magazines. It might be a generational thing that will change, but there are also younger people. It's not just, you know, your parents that are still into a printed book or a printed magazine. Mm. I mean, much like film photography has made a bit of a comeback, it will never, you know, replace digital photography, not a chance, but there's enough of a a niche for film photography for it to be, you know, a scene. And I think that's maybe if you're an underground or an indie musician or someone just involved in doing something unusual, you must know that your niche is out there 
somewhere. And thanks to the digital age that we live in, it's easier to find those people and to find that niche. And you might not have a hundred people in your hometown who wants to buy your music, but you might have a hundred in your province, which means there might be a thousand in the country, which could mean there are 10,000 in the world. You just need to reach them. And those niches are, you know, I guess it's maybe got something to do with the fact that there are so many people in the world now. We all got to entertain ourselves with something. So just just find that niche and make it your own. It doesn't have to be the only thing that you do. Like I said earlier, I'm not a musician, so I didn't set out to become someone who would make a living from the band. I never saw it like that. Yeah. Which made it easier for me because I always focused on being a journalist. That's how I've earned my keep over the years. But you can still make that band project or a zine project or whatever. That's something else I do is that zine called Uns Klanky. You can keep those projects going. It doesn't have to drain your own money. You can actually earn money from it. It doesn't have to be the thing that pays your rent. Mm. You know, if you really look at musicians around the world in all likelihood, you know, it's probably a, a very small percentage of people who make their entire income purely through music. And those would be people who've, you know, whatever, made number one hits or been in the industry for a very long time and have royalties coming in or whatever it might be. But most musicians of probably some very cool bands that you follow, you know, in America or Canada or wherever, many of those guys probably do other stuff as well. I remember reading about... Is it Lamb Chop, American band? They had a, a vast cast of band members at some stage. And and many of those guys, besides the lead singer so much, I think, but in the towns that they were from, they were carpenters or builders or ran the shop or a bookshop or whatever it is. And they were in Lamb Chop, which became a world-famous band in that sort of alt-country genre at the time, about uh, 20, 15 years back. You don't have to maybe put yourself under that kind of pressure to feel you've started a band, this is now the be all and end all. For some people that's gonna work and for the you know, the people who either strike it lucky or maybe, you know, those talents that you just, you know, it's obvious this person will be one of the best singers you've ever heard or this will be one of the best bands ever. For probably, I don't know, ninety five percent of bands and, and musicians it's much harder than that. And maybe just to make it easier on yourself, also find that other thing that you also love doing that can pay the bills because that's that unfortunate thing that we have to do. Yeah, ain't that the truth? And we're going to get down to all of those making a living questions now. But I mean, I think you may have even answered most of them right there. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead on your thing. No, I love it. I love it. It's so exciting to talk to you. And it's so exciting how much you know and I love love what you said about your niche is out there because I totally agree with that and I think people need to hear that but I want to go back to your creations your poetry your songs <laughs> what inspires you what drives you to create writing is a funny thing I mean I because I write for you know my day job as well so I, you know I sit at the laptop I work with words I open Microsoft Word I edit a document I translate it I write something, I research, I condense facts. I, you know, like writing is such a, a diverse and powerful tool. I think we often forget that it's at the base of a lot of stuff that happens. You know, writing is at the base of this podcast. 
you sit down and you come up with a list of questions and you write them down. Mm. You know, on another level, writing is important when you go to the shop because you made a shopping list and you wrote it down. A good writing is is the heart and soul of a great Netflix series that you're watching. It's not just the acting. It starts with the writing. When people make good radio, somewhere behind the scenes is a good writer telling those people what to say and when to say it. For better or for worse, politicians and governments, you know, writing is underpins a lot of, you know, something that happens um, behind the scenes. So, I mean, that's kind of how I see writing is that it is this tool that I enjoy using. And I've always known this uh, definitely since somewhere in high school. I was always that bloody kid who was like the editor of the school newspaper, taking photographs of, you know, videoing the, the first rugby team rather than actually being in the first rugby team. I was always that guy with a camera uh, and mm. writing an article and this and this. So I was always into writing like it was, i just realized it was something that i enjoyed i mean i grew up afrikaans but i'm quite bilingual i could work in both english and afrikaans i mean i wish i this probably you know not really a regret but i wish because i'm too lazy maybe but i wish just overnight i could wake up tomorrow and understand speak and be able to write 10 languages imagine you could do that i mean many south africans can speak three four five languages and that's maybe one step further back from writing is what a powerful tool language is. So to me, when I sit down and I write pieces for the band and this kind of, it, we can call it poetry, but I mean, some people might say it, you know, it doesn't fit the format of poetry or whatever, but I've never paid attention to those things. But to me, doing the sort of creative writing exercise of writing a piece or a poem or whatever was always completely part and parcel with the Buck Fever Underground. So when Gil and I started the band as students, I had just, and I remember, I mean, I lived by myself in Grahamstown for my first two years. So I had a lot of time, and it was about the time when OK Computer came out, you know, so you'd be sitting there at your computer, listening to OK Computer, typing, being inspired by lyrics and music of another band. And that's maybe where a lot of inspiration in any case comes from. You, you either read other writers novels, poems, collections of poems, short stories, or you listen to music. And definitely for me, during university years, it would have been largely music. I mean, I you know, read as well widely, but to be inspired by music and by great lyrics. I remember still, this must have been just before university, in high school at some point, I could just sort of get 5FM on my radio and I could listen to Barney Simon's show, but softly, after 10 o'clock at night, because I was in boarding school my entire life. This is boarding school in the Plattland. But for the first time, I heard these South African bands. And at that stage, you're talking sort of 94, 95 now, there were very few that you could hear on radio. Springbok Nude Girls had just started. Batre Nege had just started. And I remember hearing Batre Nege for the first time. They had a song, it must have been on their first album. The song was called Lucy from the Steakhouse in Dalmas. And Barney Simon played the song, and it was this dark kind of Nick Cavey voice. It was cool. It was sort of it mixed a bit of Afrikaans and English. And it was about this woman called Lucy from the Steakhouse in Dalmas. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. This is what I like. And I think someone like Paul Rickert and Batre Nieche, and seeing them live later at that stage when they were a four-piece band, you know, there they were on stage making this kind of industrial techno rock music. 
There's Atnell banging road signs and car springs and there's Heiserberger, larger than life, painting this mural in the background. Arno van Vliet playing these like cool guitar riffs and this amazing personality of Paul Rickert as the front man with this incredible voice that could just say anything and it sounds cool. So people like that inspired me. I think the hardest thing to do maybe is to write something that's not bad <laughs> and you don't you don't really know until someone tells you or at some point you begin to recognize your own bad writing, which is an important step, you know. It usually happens, you know, much too late. You go back to something you wrote five or ten years ago and you cringe a bit. You're like, oh, this is so bad. But that's good because it means that you've developed as a writer and you've grown in your style. You've kind of fine-tuned maybe your method of writing. Those first years were much looser. I'd be, you know, drinking half a bottle of Tussies and then, you know, sit and tap out a few words and think it's great. And then we go and like play a show and no one cares because everyone else has had half a bottle of Tussies. But that's your student years. And it, it, yeah. you kind of refine it a bit also when it comes to, okay, you're recording an album now, which is going to cost you money and have the best songs on that album. So as the band also developed, I mean, from those rudimentary beginnings, you know, obviously all the musicians in the band, you know, everyone grew as musicians and they became really good musicians. So by the time we recorded Teaching Afrikaans as a Foreign Language, that's an album that came out in 2003. So we recorded in 2002. It was at Paris Lucas's studio in Fishhook. And at that stage, things were much tighter. You know, we'd been playing together for longer. Uh, Stephen Tim was as drummer in the band. John was involved. And everyone brought their different skills to those recording sessions. We are largely, and those people who have seen us before know that we're an improv band, we're a jam band. So we don't necessarily rehearse songs and replay them in the same way that you might have heard them on CD at all. <laughs> those recordings are almost all of them. Sometimes we, after the fact, we play them a little bit like we did you know, record them that day in the studio. But normally when we go into the studio, there might have been a few ideas which came out of live shows and Gil might, you know, have this specific bass line that he's like, guys, there was this bass line. And then, you know, John, you did this thing. Do you remember that thing you did? And John would like be there on the keyboard and go, did this thing. John is like a great sort of a pop musician in the studio and he knows how to make a song out of disparate threads. There's Steven who could lock into any kind of a rhythm required on drums. And then later Richard Kapp, who's guitar playing, is so unusual when he plays his guitar upside down, but that's just because th that's the way he learned it. And his kind of soundscapes would create this kind of background to everything that somehow just worked, uh, especially later. Richard, I think he must have joined us by the time we made Saves. That was, I think, in 2007, the Buck Fever Underground Saves, a full-length album, and then Frikir de Flay, uh, about four years later, maybe. And those albums... Buckfield Underground Saves and Frigida Flay are probably our best albums in my mind, the ones that have the most kind of complete songs and maybe best recordings. And all the band members, when we're in the studio, like I say, we might come in with a few ideas, and I obviously, I don't just make up the words there, and then I bring them on printouts. But while we're there, it was always important that whoever did the recording for us had to be on board with our style. So later, Saves was recorded by Tara Fatah, and forget a play by Tim Rankin. You know, and Tim, I mean, he's, a, you know, a musician who's played in Bed on Bricks and many other bands. He immediately got what we were doing when we did forget a play. It was like, oh, 
I see. You guys have not arrived here with <laughs> 10 uh, perfectly worked out songs. <laughs> okay, right. But he embraced that. And we made Forget a Flay, which I think is a really great album, just leaning on the strengths and going with what we felt in the studio worked best. And then often the lyrics came last. So I would listen to what the band was busy doing. And it's, it's kind of the same when we play live. I normally tell the band, just start playing because I need to first hear what kind of a pace they're playing at. What kind of a mood is this? Is this dark and dreary or is this, uh, you know, sort of cheerful and, and humorous? And from there, I can pick up lyrics that fit that. So it's almost like making a mixtape in a way, some of our musics, is that you first wait for the that kind of mood to arrive and then you find words to fit it. It is a hit and miss method. I wouldn't advise everyone trying this. And if you want to be making, you know, perfect radio pop songs, this ain't the way to do it. But if you want to reach interesting places, then I would suggest doing this because you're kind of taking chances. At least when you do it in the studio, you can stop and say, no, that was crap. Let's start over again. But when you do it live, it's really quite energizing because you realize we're walking the plank now. <laughs> we can either fall off the end of this plank or we could, you know, just still balance and make it back safely onto the boat. And, you know, some nights you'd fall off the plank and eat shark food and other nights you come back on the boat, you're the captain again. As much as I like making albums and making artifacts, I also love playing live because that energy, you can't find it anywhere else where you sense from your audience what you're doing now is dead boring in the same way you sense from them that what you're doing now is exciting and new and interesting to them and COVID really stopped that didn't it well <laughs> COVID regulations i sort of make a joke about it because the buck fever underground almost in the last decade we do play kind of official venues from time to time in cape town for example the alma cafe is one of our regular places but we have largely become a band that plays smaller private shows. So we don't play to big crowds ever. So if you're going to have crowd restrictions, we're perfectly fine with it. So if your crowd restriction yeah. is whatever, 20 people, that's a packed house to us. So <laughs> it's not adversely affected us because we haven't been playing a lot of, you know, kind of bigger official venues, which now unfortunately have either closed down or, you know, it's really struggling to get live music going again. We've played smaller private shows. We obviously didn't play anything, you know, during hard lockdown last year. No one went anywhere. But in the last quarter of 2020, we did play a few shows in small private venues. And that has worked very well for us. And we've kind of styled ourselves as, you know, that's what we do lately. We'll play, you know, if a, a bigger festival, or bigger venue wants us to play, of course, we'll come. But what we do works extremely well in a private, intimate setting. And we've really enjoyed doing that. Again, it's meant that we've taken our music to places that you would never reach, you know, as a regular musician. So, for example, when we go on tour, we last went on tour, what was it, about three years ago. Myself, Stephen and Michael, we can fit everything only just into my car. Our PA, our merch, you know, clothes for two weeks, off we go. And... <laughs> If we had to rely on regular gigs at the pub or a, a proper venue, how many gigs would we have gotten around the country? Four, five, maybe? And that mm. wouldn't work for us because, you know, scale-wise, you wouldn't make your petrol money back if you have to drive to Joburg and back for that. So what we do instead is we focus on those single fans 
we know we have in different towns. So I start with a map and I go, okay, yeah, someone in Pringle Bay, my aunt in Onoris, that fan who once bought t-shirts from us in Neisner. There's uh, Marcel and P.E., who's a longtime fan and supporter of the band. There's someone in Grahamstown, surely still remembers us. There's Craddock, because that's my hometown. But Tully, because why not? There's Smithfield, where we've played successfully before. Rissendal, where I've met some people. There's that woman from the guest house in Bethlehem that said, hey, why did you guys come play here? There are a few people in Joburg and Pretoria, back gardens, small theater here and there. On the way back, hmm, where should we play? Okay. How about this farm stall near Springfontein? Because the woman who runs that went to school with me. Surely we can play at lunchtime in exchange for pies. You know, so that's what we did. And then <laughs> this is this is how we plan our tour. And it means that yeah. some nights in Nysda, we only played to six people. But those six people yeah. filled the room because that's how big the room was. We could barely yeah. all fit into the room, you know, because half the room was filled with the band members. We've twice now toured with uh, Willem Samuel, his solo act, Skrialien. So we even have a support act, you know. With this little band of people that arrive in your town, we rock up at your house, we set up, you invite your 10, 20 or six friends and we have a great night. Tonight we sleep on your couch or in your spare bedroom and in the morning, please, if you could give us some breakfast or coffee and rusks before we hit the road, that'd be great. It means we don't have to spend money on guest houses, because again, it will make the exercise unaffordable. So we stay where we play or with friends in the town, if we have friends or family around. You know, one night you might make no money at all, but the next night you might make a thousand or two thousand rand. And that tour that we did, we played 21 shows in 16 days going around the country, was in the end hugely profitable and my, uh, the word hugely I use you know in inverted commas because it wouldn't be hugely <laughs> for everyone but to us it was it's like look we got this money in the bank we can now pay for a recording or bring out a CD or whatever it is so that money always goes back into the next project that we do but by focusing on those small we come back to niches those small groups of people mm. and they are out there you know there's someone in Britstown heard me speak on Aris Gheer one day about this tour before we went on the tour. And she runs this really awesome coffee shop called The Old Jail. You must pop in there if you drive past. And her husband heard us on the radio. And he told her, hey, this is banned. They're still looking for one gig somewhere between uh, Bloemfontein and Grafrenet. And she contacted me through Facebook. And she said, well, I've got this coffee shop and a guest house. Why don't you guys come play at the coffee shop? And we're like... Hell yes, we're coming to Bridgetown. So, you know, sometimes it kind of also works the other way around. You can seek out people or they can uh, seek you out as well. You know, if they want to, they'll find you. You're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, and so are they. They'll track you down. But I, I love doing that. It gives me like a huge amount of satisfaction to, especially something like that tour. That's probably, those are some of the highlights also of being in the band over the years would be to do those tours. We can't do them every year. We can maybe do them every three or four years because we're all doing other things and you're busy with other stuff. But when you do those and you connect all these dots on the map, you hook up with old friends, you meet new people. It's amazing. And often it's not even about who the band is or what kind of music you play. We tend to forget that, especially in smaller towns, People have no access at all to anything like live music. You know, maybe once a year the town has some festival and a couple of musicians with like 
you know, buses with like their faces on the side pull in and they play a show at the beer tent. But as like a cultural phenomenon, if you will, most small towns have no live music except for, you know, maybe a choir performance around like church or something like that or something at the school. But then these guys arrive in a car from Cape Town and they set up a PA and you've never heard of them. You're there because they're playing at your friend's house. But what I find is that people are incredibly patient and they're willing to give you their time. So, you know, if we stand there for seven hours reciting poetry, they might get bored as hell and leave. But if you do it for 40 or 45 minutes and focus and, you know, give a good performance and engage people, people will sit or stand and listen to you because they're interested. They might never buy the CD. They might end up buying a T-shirt, mind you. But they will give you their time. People are, are really incredibly gracious. Like they're receptive to something new, something original, something unusual, even in the smallest towns. And those people can be 20 years old or they can be 70 years old because these are the groups of people that we play for. In Batuli, we largely played to the old age home. And you know what? It was amazing. They'd never seen anything like it. They never heard of us. They were there because the owner of the Buku Hotel invited them across the road. What a great audience. I mean, I joked back then, but I would actually like to do this. I can totally tour the Buck Fever Underground to old age homes around the country. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. I just want to reiterate how very punk you are, but how much I agree with you. And I think for, particularly on our little folk scene here in South Africa, it is the way to go, what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. There are venues that you can play at. We've played a few places in Cape Town over you know, the last few years regularly. I mean, back in the day, when I say back in the day, I mean before 2010. That's back in the day these days, isn't it? It's before 2010. <laughs> it really is. Gil, one of the founding members of the band, he owned and ran the independent armchair theater in Observatory in Cape Town for a number of years. And that happened to coincide with maybe the most creative time of the band and a time that we recorded albums like Buck Van Saves and even the music from Fukira Flay came out of that. There's a live album, Limbs Gone Batty, that came out of that era. And having access to a venue is, I mean, at that time, it, you know, it was real access because we almost lived there. We lived around the corner in Obs. Mm. I shared an office with Gil upstairs. At night, we would be downstairs watching any band that's coming through town and we would then often play there as well. In the past sort of 10 years, we've played less venues like that. But we have, I mentioned the Alma Cafe earlier. There's the Cottage Club, Bill Knight's Place, also home little theatre set up in Fishhook and a few others. Those venues are, they're quite rare, like to find a venue that really suits what you do. And that's quite important because it can be very disheartening, I think, as a musician starting out. And I think especially you're talking about a folk musician, so, you know, sort of stereotypically the folk musician arrives there, he or she, just with a guitar, and there's going to be some sensitive, poignant songs being performed here. And if you don't have an audience that's receptive to that, you know, that can be really demoralizing. It's flipping happy hour, and people are just there to get smashed between six and seven, and you're playing between mm. six and seven. It's not going to be great. So, you know, the lesson you learn there is, well, if you're going to play there again, make sure it's not an happy hour. Or, you know, find that folk venue where people come in, they've poured their glass of wine. Now they're going to sit down between six and seven and listen to you play. There's much more value in that. So that's maybe a nice first thing to look out for if you 
make this kind of music is to find those venues that will really work for you because it's not nice to play in a place where no one's paying attention to what you're doing and we've all been there yeah oh my gosh i played a venue in white river while the rugby was on oh man competing with rugby on the big screen that's definitely i can't recall where but it's probably happened more than once where you're playing and they have politely decided to turn down the sound <laughs> but the Eight oaks at the bar with their backs turned towards you. They're watching the rugby. <laughs> at some point oh. during your, you know, you got your 20 people here looking at you, listening. But at some point, halfway through a song, the oaks at the bar are going crazy, cheering or <laughs> swearing or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, they're responding to my song. No. Uh, oh. Someone just scored it's a try. Never. You know? <laughs> and you're like, okay, great, rugby. So with the Buckfeev Underground, at least to an extent, if you kind of see, okay, this is the scene, you can fight back to an extent because of the improv nature of what we do. We don't have like a set list and these are going to be the songs. And this is... So I sometimes occasionally when it's really necessary and when, you know, you have the people in the front, they're drunk already, they're heckling you. Then I just turn it into almost like a stand-up comedy show. Yeah. Maybe not pure comedy, but because I have the ability to stand there and respond to what people say, I don't have to stick to a certain song. The band can play in the yeah. background, whatever the hell they want. This <sighs> conversation I'm having with this heckler in the front is the song. This is the song that we are performing right now. And that guy, he doesn't have to realize it, but that's the way I can see it from my perspective, because sometimes you kind of have to turn it so that you use what's there, all these adverse conditions, and you try and turn it into the song or into the mood or you, you bring it in. I was talking about the happy hour thing, and I thought back to a time when Buck Fever played at the shack in Cape Town. And it was downstairs, and it was literally – and we knew it was going to be happy hour. It was like 6 to 7 on a whatever Wednesday night. We knew what was coming, but we didn't quite realize how popular this happy hour was because the place was absolutely jam-packed. And it would have worked better, obviously, for like a kind of a punky, loud rock band to play a set and people just like, rah, 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 and like, you know, drinking 18 beers an hour. But it was us. And we realized, well, if we do what we normally do, it's a lost cause. Mm. We turned on this other persona. We uh, Gil always called this the Warsaw Packet. So we turn into this punk band called the Warsaw Packet, and we just play as loud and fast as we can. Like everyone just turns up everything. The pace goes up. I know no one's listening to what I'm saying. So I just like ramble through different words. I shout at people. It just becomes this chaotic thing that joins the <laughs> frenzy of the bloody happy hour. And that's a way of fighting back. But because we are so kind of pliable in our methods, we we can do that. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I've actually never seen you play live, which I'd really like to do. How would I get on a mailing list? I don't know. We should probably start a mailing list, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You definitely should start that. Cult bands should have mailing lists, right? Yeah. Listen, there are some things we have not done well. Mailing list is one of them for some other reason. <laughs> What we do well is Instagram and to a lesser extent Facebook and to a lesser extent our website, all of which we have, and Bandcamp. We are just at the Buck Fever Underground on Instagram. It's probably the place where we're most active just because that happens to be the kind of social media that I personally use most. So that's probably the best way to find 
find out about shows, but I do post on Facebook as well. But I know that those are not reliable methods because with the algorithm that you have to rely on, people you know generally don't see it at all. So yes, yeah, a mailing list I should make. Yeah, that would be really nice, actually. I say 22 years into the band. <laughs> well, I think it's about time. Uh, <laughs> and there's no better time than right now, if not 22 years ago. So as we are running down to the end, I haven't had to ask any questions because you've known, you've been amazing. I, this is all so exciting and so much good information. But I want to know, is there a song out there in the world that you wish that you'd written? Yeah, I thought about this. And I mean, there are probably hundreds of songs that I wish I'd written. There's a Manic Street Preachers song called Motorcycle Emptiness from before they were really big in the 90s. It's from somewhere in the earlier 90s when they were already kind of big in England or UK, but not really worldwide. But I remember hearing this song on, must have been on Barney Simon's show. It's like, what a song. And, and it was a song that they wrote when they were like 18 years old. And it was just incredible. And I think it's, it's probably true for many musicians. I mean, not everyone like, can still you know, make a great song when you're 60 or 70. You know, we've got our Bruce Springsteens and Leonard Cohens and Bob Dylans and people to see proof for that. But a lot of, maybe especially bands, because it relies on that kind of energy between three or four or five people, make their best music when they're young, mm. high school and into university years, or at least into your early 20s. You know, even if you look at like Folk of Polisikar, made lots of incredible music, but Ashir Mitfiu Spiel Salibran, that first batch of songs, it's just energetic in all aspects. South African songwriter I've always loved is Drikas Barnard, who passed away a few years ago. He was in Brixton Moorton Ruhrforkes. He was in a more punky band called Plunk. And with uh, Esme Evacuat, he was in, in Trike, three quite different bands. And Trane van het Terrorist, it's a Brixton Moorton Ruhrforkes song. Uh, and most of the Brixton Moorton Ruhrforkes songs were written by Andries Besaidnote, other members also wrote songs, but Drikus wrote a handful of them. And Trane van het Terroris is probably one of the most powerful South African songs. But Drikus was very versatile. He could write a kind of a hard-hitting song like that. But with Trike, he was often much more playful. And he shared vocals there with Esme Evacuat, Claire. And she brought like a real kind of a, a naughty, you know, humoristic touch to his lyrics as well. So... I think it was the first track album, Fuller Militaire Irbetun. They had a song called Leislang, which is just so kind of naughty and great and witty and perfect. Like that's, that's definitely one of my favorite songs. But he wrote many songs like that, Trikus Barnard. I was lucky enough to know him as well. And we played together sort of on small tours a few times, shared the stage. Yeah, like I say, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But at 50 or 60 or 70 years old, he would have made those great songs. Mm. But yeah, so I definitely list those songs. Wonderful. And I just want to go back a second and what you were saying now about people having written their best songs after high school and before university. Dear God, I hope that's not true. Because when I look back at those years, I'm so mortified by what I created. I just hope that it just gets better and better and better. <laughs> yeah, I think it's maybe more accurate to say bands, especially bands, write their best songs at that time. I yeah. think it is a bit different for if you're a solo artist. I think that's probably something, you know, as, and like, a, you know, the names I mentioned, like 
Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and, and so on, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Yeah, they also played with bands and so on, but they, you know, they're very much one man songwriting machines. Whereas yeah. uh, a Manic Street Preachers or a Coldplay and a Radiohead, the Beatles, you know, they rely on mm. band dynamics to come up with those real moments of genius. And, you know, no one's going to tell me that the Rolling Stones, as rock and roll as they've been for many decades, they didn't write their best songs in their later years together. They wrote their best songs in their, you know, first decade together. Yes. This may be more yes, accurate yes. for okay, bands. No, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, no, I definitely agree. There's an excitement in those early yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. Wishlist collaboration. Wishlist collaboration. You know, the Buck Fever Underground is obviously my main act, but I've collaborated with other people in other projects. There's a, a more poppy band called Simply Dead that John Savage and Jane Bretzky and I did in about 2011 or so. We made a great album called Emoticon Breakdown that we never really did anything with. If you want one, let me know. Got a box full of them. <laughs> so I've collaborated with people on other projects as well. So that was like a more poppy project where we kind of wrote songs. I've worked with Jakub van der Merwe from Bitter Einder. I've appeared on tracks of different musicians over the years, somewhere, I think, on a Bitter Einder album. Yeah, a couple of others where I basically just did vocals. Thomas Crane, Battalier, and I did some shows together in Cape Town. Instrumental band where I added the vocals. Done stuff for Steven's solo electronica project, Murat Amber. But then we've also done art stuff. A year ago at Wurtfius in Stellenbosch, I was part of a essentially an art installation with two other, well, proper musicians. Uh, but Gerard Marx did this installation called Vehicle where different parts of a car, an old Mercedes, the doors were strung up and turned into instruments played by Shane Cooper, for example. And I did the vocals for that. So it's something that's in a theater context or in an art exhibition context. As the Buck Fever Underground, we've collaborated with a dance company called Darkroom Contemporary, where we had dances, slideshow, all sorts of things happening around us. This was some years ago. So... Because of what we do and because of coming back to what I said earlier about writing being this kind of basic thing that you can build other things onto, it can be added to many projects. We don't just have to collaborate with other musicians. And I haven't just collaborated with musicians, I've collaborated with artists and other writers and so on. So it kind of opens the field to future collaborations. I would love to do something with Sia from The Brother Moves On, for example, I think there are so many people, really. There's Duduzo, Makatini, whose work I really love. They're not people I've, you know, really connected with about this. And then there are many people where at some point you've done something together or you shared a bowl one night and you're like, hey, we should do something together. And those people are, yeah. I mean, I can't even remember all of, I know Drikas and I always said this and sadly we never got to, to do something together. But I've done like the odd track with Kyla Rose Smith. Derek Ripper and I have spoken mm. about this once or twice, never done anything about it. Uh, Skalkubar, uh, we've also said, hey, we should do something, and then we never did something. And there are many others. So the best people to collaborate with are maybe friends, people who understand what you're into and people who are comfortable with you and you're comfortable with them. So one of these collaborative bands that I'm involved with, also through Yaku from Bitter Ender, is called Walkie Talkie. 
And Walkie Talkie was started by Yaku some years back. And we kind of come and go. We operate on WhatsApp. We have a WhatsApp group. And that group is now swelled mm. to I don't even know how many people. And the way we do it is someone puts an idea out. We haven't done something for about eight months now. We brought out a couple of songs kind of during lockdown last year. And so it's about time for us to be active again. But someone puts out an idea and says, listen, I've done this track. Who wants to add vocals? And then maybe one, two or three. It started off largely as a spoken word band project being called Walkie Talkie. And then different vocalists will say, yes, I'll do a few lines or I'll write a few paragraphs. And then we put out a track under this collective name of Walkie Talkie. And I love those projects because they, again, it. I've worked with some people who I've never even met in real life because they live up in Pretoria or wherever they might be. But I love those projects. So there are many people I'd like to collaborate with. I think it's finding the right time and shared space to do it because often we say we'll do these things and I'm I'm bad like that. I say, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then you don't make the time. One must make the time for these things. If you don't make the time, it's not going to happen. Without a doubt. But now... I mean, you gave us your Instagram details for Buck Fever Underground, but you're doing so many other cool little things that are not entirely related to Buck Fever Underground. How can people follow you just as Toast? On Instagram, at Toast Cards. So T-O-A-S-T-C-A-R-D-S, at Toast Cards. Probably, again, where I'm most active. And then Toast Kutzer on Facebook. So I will post if there's something interesting happening. I do have a website as well, but it's not really properly developed yet, 20 years later. But those are the best places. And then the major other thing that I do is Uns Klenki Zine, which again is a massive collaborative effort. I edit it with a handful of other people. It's been going for best part of 20 years. We put it out once a year. It's a little zine collection of poetry and stories and drawings and photos and stuff. That's become a really awesome artifact as <laughs> over the years. And I, I love making it. It's I have one of those in my memory box. <laughs> I think a lot of people have them somewhere at home on the shelf or in a box. It's a book, you know, unless you, you know, you throw it away, it stays there. So I love making a little book as much as I like making a CD as a little book gives me a big kick. And Ons Klenke is that. And uh, for Ons Klenke, if people want to submit poems or stories, they can send it to the email address, sendusyourpoems at gmail.com. And it's an inbox that we look at. Normally, during the middle of the year, we sift through it and we start selecting stuff. And usually it comes out in September. Last year, it was a bit later. It was only in November or so, but it comes out once a year and, and will come out again this year. And we have some back copies as well. So people can, whether it's on Instagram, just send me a DM or whatever. I have some back copies available as well. Oh, that's so exciting. Last things last, actually. You've given some incredible advice. Either could you now... Give us a little rundown of what that advice is that you feel is most pertinent or a piece of advice that you think is most important for indie artists to make them keep making music at this very challenging time. I think the advice, obviously, I can't tell you how to make a living out of music because it's not something that I ever set out to do and not something I have done. The advice I can give is how to make your music project or whatever else it is, whether you're doing a zine or writing poetry and you want to do something with it, is how to really develop that and make it your own and kind of like put your stamp on it, especially with writing. It doesn't just happen overnight. You might be a really great writer and you know, you're the first poem you write is so brilliant and you 
you know, get a publishing contract. But for most of us, it doesn't work like that. And you don't have to rely on the kind of official structures to come to you, you know, especially with music. The years are long gone where a record company, you know, comes to your show and they love your music and they put out your CD. We know those times are gone. You must empower yourself with the tools that are available, which these days it starts with you know, having a cell phone and Wi-Fi and access to the internet and so on. And that pretty much, that's most of us. So you already have those tools, you have it in your hand, you know, a laptop, something to record on. The key thing to me over the years of this project, and we haven't been that active many years, you know, we hardly played a show, or we hardly recorded something, but every now and then, We'd be back doing shows, whether those are small shows at someone's house or recording something, even if it was a little cell phone recording project like we did last year. But keep on making things. Keep on putting out music, even if you know, you're not making albums, but you're putting out single songs, whether it's on SoundCloud or on streaming services or Bandcamp or whatever it is. But keep making stuff. Yeah. If you're able to play, keep playing. The cumulative effect of that is incredibly powerful. Having staying power is really important. Again, it's easy for me to say because I haven't made my living out of music for the past 20 years. I've made my living out of journalism and, and working in the media industry. But if you really love that project, whether it's music or writing, whatever, keep nurturing it. Don't feel, oh, it wasn't successful first time around, therefore... I must completely forget about it because the creativity that I like to believe we all have, but if you had this kind of bubbling from you, maybe in high school or university years when you were younger, and then at some point you realized, I'm not making money from playing my folk gigs or, you know, the band is broken up and people have gone other places. So now I'm just going to go into this career that I've studied for and off I go. That creativity is obviously it's still somewhere inside you. And I feel that if we don't keep nurturing it, it kind of dies away a bit. We have so much potential. We have so many ideas. And we live in a world where people say, okay, well, but that idea is great. But how will you make money from it? And everything in your life does not have to be like that. There can be that thing that you do. Writing a poem is the purest example of it. Sitting down with a pen or at your computer, typing away, writing a poem, you're writing that poem just for you. That's how it starts. Yeah. You write that thing because it's important to you. It's something you saw. It's something you are feeling as you write it. There's real value in it. It's up to someone else to decide, oh, this is a great poem or uh, it's not that great. It doesn't matter. When you write that poem, it is for you and it is very, very important. And if you keep doing that, I like to think that you will keep this conversation going with yourself over many, many years. It might be stop-start. It's like that for me too. I don't write a poem every day. I don't write a poem every month. Sometimes six months go past without writing anything. And that's okay because at some point I will sit down again and do something creative, whether that's drawing album covers for CDs that I'm making at home or writing a longer piece. I know it will come. And that's the most important thing is to keep this creative side of yourself going for as long as you live, as long as it's possible, basically. That made me really weepy. I really needed to hear that. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> it was great. I love talking about this stuff. 
The great thing about a medium such as a podcast, again, now is that, you know, this recording, we've just made an artifact here. And what you're doing yeah. in making this series of podcasts, you're building this library that someone might only discover 10 years from now, and that's okay. But when they do, it would be really amazing to them. They might discover musicians they've never heard of before. They might discover your music and they've never heard it. And there's real value in that. And that's maybe the most important thing is we must record these things. Yeah. Even if it's for now, it's like on an old DVD somewhere, you know, in a box in your cupboard. At some point, bring that out and, you know, put it online and share it with people. But save it. You know, it starts with doing it for yourself. But I can assure you there will be, even if it's just, you know, your friends and loved ones, there will be other people who are interested in what you do and who will support you yeah. and who will love what you do. I love you. You are wonderful. <laughs> it was so nice to speak to you. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, so nice. Thank you so much for chatting. This is incredibly valuable and incredibly historically important information. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. I like that. Yes. History is also one of those words that people feel it's you know, it's something that happened way in the past and you're not really part of history because where you're living now is some out of control present. But that's also mm. not the case. Like everything we do right now becomes part of history in one or another way. We just happen to have so many means of distribution of what we do these days between WhatsApp messages and DMs and voice notes and Facebook messages and emails and so on the archive of all these artifacts is now just so massive that it becomes harder to see it for what it is, which is simply making history as we go along. Amazing. I hope you have the best day. Thank you. You too. If you are an indie artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on Instagram at shotguntori. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. The snow-sown mountaintops, the quartzite plains below, all held here in my cup, coffee beans to my lip, meat bone and orange rind, bubbling water from a tap, softening my skin, sandpapered in the wind, of time and talk and being with and being me. We are not alone, and we have wings, we have tongues, and we can sing. We carry visions, we hold dreams, when we sleep, plate tectonics ensure that we drift apart, yet are crumpled together like a sponge. The Himalayas rise higher, and reach around to touch fingers, with our faraway friends, a flock around a fire, hold strong. Up ahead, keep the course, don't stray. Roll up your bag in the morning, shoulder a load, and go forth. The sun sits at your back, nudging you along, through the valley of dancing stones, along the streams of bittersweet remember, the light flickering in everything.
strong up ahead. Keep the course, don't stray. Roll up your bag in the morning, shoulder a load, and go forth. Through the valley of dancing stones, along the streams of bittersweet remember, the light flickering in everything, to see you.